There we go. Fancy Sanders. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me, Ari. Yeah, of course. It's This is very exciting for me because I literally, I saw a clip of you on CNN. It's got almost like a million views. And I was like, I wonder if, I wonder if I could talk to this guy. And, you know, I DM'd you on Instagram and you were very nice. And, and here we are. Um, so you, 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 I feel like we have a lot in common. We're both Americans, both raised in very, uh, Zionist, um, like a very Zionist culture. Uh, and I think we both went to Israel and thought about joining the army, but the difference is that you actually did it. Um, can you like take me there to you as, I guess you were 18 years old. Like what was, what was that like? Like the decision to be like, I'm going to be a soldier. Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, it was a long time ago at this point, but uh, I was just kind of like a typical modern Orthodox uh, high school graduate. Uh, I didn't even particularly feel strongly about coming to Israel for a year after graduating high school, but basically everyone was doing it. Um, I don't know if that was, I went to MTA. Uh, uh, so basically almost my entire graduating ha class I uh, went to like a, a yeshiva program. So my parents were like, do you want to go? And I said, sure. And uh, I went and, uh, but it was really transformative. I think within the first few weeks, I really kind of began experiencing uh, Torah study and Jewish, uh, uh, Jewish life in a different way than I had growing up in a much more meaningful way. I felt much more connected. I felt it was much more authentic um for you know a variety of reasons um and i really just decided like you know after a few months uh that you know how can i turn up this opportunity uh to to stay here um you know i started really thinking in like historical terms like my ancestors for hundreds of years faced persecution throughout the entire world and now there's this um this thriving Jewish country in the land of Israel where they have, you know, could only dreamed of, uh, of something like this. Uh, so I, I have to be part of it. I have to support it. Um, and it was all really in the lens, uh, of, of, you know, religious life and, uh, Jewish history, uh, and redemptive, uh, the redemptive process that, um, you know, I kind of saw the creation of the state of Israel as part of. So it definitely was, like, um, you know, I definitely grew up in a Zionist community in, you know, in a modern Orthodox Zionist community. I went to the Israel Day Parade and, and all sorts of things in New York. Um, but it wasn't really something I was very passionate about one way or the other uh, until I spent that year in Israel, uh, at which time I became really, really passionate about it, but really uh, in a religious, from a religious place. Um and the army was just kind of like incidental, like, yeah, I want to be part of this. I want to be part of this historical, religiously significant process. Um, and that is only possible because Israel has a strong military, because, you know, Israel has uh, been attacked since its very inception multiple times by surrounding uh, countries and has been uh, victimized by uh, horrific terrorist attacks. And so we need a strong army to uh, defend it. And, and so I was perfectly willing and um and uh really 
considered it to be a privilege to be able to to serve in the IDF and to protect everything that was so meaningful that I saw around me. Yeah, that's, I mean, it's a very powerful story that I think I have a lot of friends who are very similar. They, you know, they, they went to Israel for a year. They quote unquote flipped out. You know, I feel like I had the opposite. I like flipped out in fifth grade. <laughs> I like started, I had the payas, like I had the big keeper. And then from then, uh, my religious observance was slowly, slowly downhill until in Israel. I was eventually, I was like, I don't know if this is for me personally, but, um, you know, I still, I really relate to everything you said about like the religious connection, like the pride also, you know? Um, and I'm curious if you feel like, this is, this is what I feel. I feel like I was not given the full story growing up, that I was given a very one-sided narrative that purposely excludes a huge part of what happened to create the state of Israel and maintain the state of Israel. Uh, like the first time I even heard that it's possible that Israelis commit violence, I was 19. This was when I was in, I was in yeshiva in the West Bank. And they brought us, or well, not they, it was like one one kid from the yeshiva organized a sit-down with a local Palestinian guy who told us about getting shot in the leg by an Israeli settler. And I was shocked. I was like, an Israeli? Like, you mean the perfect angels who never do anything wrong, who drop leaflets and like all that other stuff? So like, I'm curious if you had like a moment or something. I think you talked about it on CNN, something about Hari Ball maybe, but. I'm just curious what if you have had like a moment where you were like, oh my God, like, is there more to this that no one has told me about? Uh, yeah, I mean, there were so many moments over the years. Um, uh, but yeah, I think, um, you know, to me, um, you know, I, what Israel wasn't really something that I was like really interested in or passionate about growing up in the U.S. So I, I would say like my sense of, uh, you know, you know, maybe being a little bit upset about things that weren't told me is, is more about like my education here uh, with the people who are living here, who are talking about how redemptive and really getting me um, to really adopt that worldview when I was, you know, 18 19 uh 20 but also had no um gave no uh you know uh background information or no nuanced um uh you know very little nuanced or informed uh you know uh takes or perspectives about you know uh you know self-reflecting about what Israel is actually doing in the West Bank, in the Gaza Strip is, you know, what, what are the possible um, uh, outcomes or, or, or ways forward? Um, and, you know, it wasn't like, you know, it wasn't true about all my teachers or anything like that by, by any stretch. But, uh, you know, um, uh, I definitely think that really only about halfway into my service did I complete my training. I was in a special forces infantry unit. Um, and, and was uh, only then was I really sent into the West Bank for a kind of extended period of time. Uh, there were like brief moments, uh, during my training where I went for a couple of days, uh, you know, uh, that I got a little taste of it and maybe, maybe started asking some questions. But yeah, I think when I was in the, in what's called the Shomron, the Northern West Bank stationed in a settlement, 
um, uh, of, of various settlements, um, you know, in the mountains uh, uh, of the Shomron. Um, did I really fully un begin to understand the scope of what it means to control uh, this vast territory with millions of Palestinians through military force? Um, and yeah, I, I remember standing on, uh, I don't remember saying this. I, I did actually, uh, like quite a few interviews, um, just recently. Um, but yeah, one of the things I, I tell people, cause it, it just left an impact on me was, uh, standing on this mountain called Har Eval, Mount Eval, um, which is like one of the tallest mountains in the West Bank. It's a, a mountain that's, uh, uh, dis discussed in in uh, the Tanakh, in uh, you know a biblical the biblical story uh, um, when uh, Joshua leads the Jewish people into the land of Israel. Um, looking down below, beneath the mountain, on this uh, city of Nablus, which is like one of the biggest Palestinian cities beneath it, and I was on an army base on the top of the mountain. Um, and my job was to just basically prevent any Palestinians from climbing all the way up to the mountain, anywhere near where we were uh, on our army base. And on the other side of the valley, there's another mountain called Har, uh, Har Bracha or Har Grizim. Um, and there's also a settlement and an army base over there. And there's also soldiers that make sure that no Palestinians get close uh, to that base or to that settlement. Um, and it just kind of felt like you know, this is this beautiful area. Like I, I grew up, I loved hiking. I loved exploring. Um, and, uh, you know, it just seems so uh, bizarre that, you know, Palestinians couldn't kind of freely climb up these mountains. Um, and, you know, I knew that that was the case also throughout the West Bank and other settlements that I was stationed in, like uh, a settlement called Kadumim, which I had to also, you know, was responsible for guarding a perimeter around it. Uh, there's not even a fence around the settlement. It's just like this invisible red line um, on a map that runs through fields and olive groves and Palestinians uh, from the nearby villages can't cross this red line. And there's no physical demarcation. So um, if they're observed by surveillance cameras uh, crossing them, you know, uh, we would be called, uh, we would have to like get all in our combat gear and, and, and rush out in armored jeeps uh, and kind of intercept them. Um, and so I remember like, you know, uh, being called upon to go and, and finding, you know, middle-aged uh, Palestinian couple uh, picking leaves. Um, you know, there were other instances, you know, where we're just stopping Palestinian farmers, uh, you know, showing up, what are you doing? Where, where are you going? Uh, you know, don't stand here, don't walk here. Um, and it just seemed like this doesn't make sense. This doesn't seem sustainable. And the more I uh, read about it and thought about it and learned about the reality, the less uh, uh, it seemed to make sense to me. Uh, I realized it wasn't, this wasn't just about uh, defending Israel's existence from an external threat, uh, but rather um, my, uh, my deployment to this, this part of the West Bank was about enabling um, the continuation of the settlement project, which was not something that was necess necessary for Israel's existence, but rather was an ideological project, um, which was designed to expand uh, the, 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 the boundaries of Israel's control, uh, but didn't offer any type of political equality and 
equal rights to the far more numerous Palestinian residents of this area. Uh, and so that's why I, as a soldier, was tasked with controlling the lives of these people. And that just seemed to be ridiculous and unfair. Uh, and it was kind of the beginning of a process of disillusionment that I started going through during around eight months of being deployed um, in the West Bank, uh, because I obviously had like left a lot behind in New York with my family, with my friends, uh, because I believed in uh, you know everything I just told you. Um, and it's not like I gave up in that entire system of belief, but it just became a little bit more nuanced and not, you know, all just rosy hued glasses you know it just i started beginning to to question some of the things that israel was doing um very much like kind of maybe you're describing um but i was actually one of the soldiers um and that that was exacerbated very very severely by um the escalation in the summer of 2014 um, which started with the kidnapping, the murdering of, of these three uh, Israeli teenagers um, in uh, Gush Etzion, in the southern West Bank. Right outside of uh, Alon Shfut, where I was in Yeshiva. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it was nowhere near where we were, we were stationed, but uh, we were still uh, in response. You know, uh, we were told this is an opportunity to do a crackdown. So we began arresting lots and lots of people. Uh, and Hamas retaliated by firing rockets, um, and we basically went were were pulled out of the West Bank, sent down into the Gaza Strip, sent into the Gaza Strip, um, and basically, you know, a lot of the images that everyone is seeing now in their you know television or their their feed nonstop are things that kind of I saw, um, you know, for a couple of weeks, um, pretty pretty close up, like these bombed out residential neighborhoods, almost entirely devoid of civilians. Um, you know, we were getting shot at from a distance by Hamas fighters. Um, I did find, uh, you know, I did found in one of the neighborhoods that we were in, I did find an elderly woman uh, who had been killed. And I found her corpse uh, in one of the houses we, as we swept through it. Um, you know, there was a soldier in my unit a few days later who was shot and killed uh, by by an anti-tank missile, and a bunch of soldiers in my unit were were injured uh, and evacuated. Um, our our job was to basically secure a perimeter around an area where uh, engineers were were uh, trying to demolish uh, uh, tunnels that crossed from from uh, Gaza into into Israel. Um, and then uh, when we pulled out of um, the second neighborhood that we were in, the Air Force flew over it and basically uh, flattened uh, uh, much of the neighborhood. Um, and I learned I learned later that they actually uh, killed uh, eight members of, of you know uh, a Palestinian family who were there, who actually had been inside a house that was taken over by soldiers from my unit. Um, who had basically, by you know, luckily hadn't killed, hadn't killed or injured them when they were going into the house because our we were basically told, like you mentioned, the leaflets. We were told uh, everywhere that we're going into uh, has been cleared of civilians. The civilians have fled. They've been warned, and so you go into every house with basically live fire, 
you shoot into the windows, you shoot into the, you know, maybe sometimes even blow holes into the walls. Uh, so you can go uh, avoid uh, going through the front door, which might be booby trapped, uh, which is a very, you know, dangerous uh, and deadly, um, you know, thing that, that, that uh, Hamas does to some of the houses. Um, and basically, um, you know, uh, when I came out of that, 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 uh, that war, I was just, you know, you know, the, the images and the, and the experiences were very, um, you know, left a strong impression on me. Um, and I, and I remember thinking like, okay, like that was, that was shitty. Like, what is that? What is anyone doing to, um, what is anyone in power doing to, uh, prevent that from happening again? Um, and, um, what I began to realize uh, over, you know, the years, uh, uh, you know, my first years as a civilian was that not only was nobody doing anything to prevent it from happening again, the enemy that we fought against, Hamas, was being strengthened uh, by our own elected officials, our own government. Uh, they were, um, you know, we were facilitating the transfer of uh tens of millions of dollars a month to prop up Hamas because um uh, in the eyes of our government which was basically heavily heavily in favor of the settlement project and against any type of political uh solution involving territorial compromise and involving uh, the establishment of a Palestinian state Hamas was actually an asset to those to that to the to 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 the people in power uh, and to their constituents, um, and uh, the Palestinian Authority, uh, which was in control of the West Bank, which was in you know security coordination with with Israel, even during the time that I was stationed in the West Bank, um, they were considered to be um, a liability, even though they renounced terrorism and they helped the IDF crack down on terrorists in the West Bank uh, because they had international legitimacy. Um, they could uh, more successfully um, uh, basically galvanize international pressure against Israel to make uh, concessions uh, and to, you know, to evacuate settlements or to work to, uh, to take steps towards a political solution. And in that sense, uh, and some of them, you know, some of the people who are now, you know, top ministers, uh, even Netanyahu was on the record saying this in, in 2019, uh, basically uh, that. Uh, it's in Israel's interest to transfer money to bolster Hamas. Uh, I think Batal Smutrich, I think it was in 2015, said uh, Batal Smutrich is the Israeli minister of finance, who is also a minister in the um, the finance, uh, sorry, is also a minister in the Israel's defense ministry and a member, a member of the security cabinet. So one of the one of the most powerful Israeli politicians in, in Israeli government said openly Hamas is an asset. Uh, and the Palestinian Authority is a liability, is a burden, um, and so that was that was infuriating for me. As soon as I realized this, uh, I really wanted people to understand the extent of the destruction that was caused in Gaza. I wanted people to understand that uh, you know this wasn't bringing us any uh, closer to peace uh, or security. Um, that really the only way uh, to create long-term security and safety for uh, Israelis was to uh, work towards creating a sustainable political solution. Um, and so 
you know, uh, that set me kind of on a trajectory of, of being uh, an activist. Uh, first, as a student, I got involved with the Merits Party, which is one of the few Israeli parties, which actually t- today is not in the Knesset, but up until recently, it was uh, a small party in the Knesset, which spoke uh, uh, spoke up uh, usually pretty firmly in favor of pursuing a political solution. Um, and um, then I got involved with Breaking the Silence, which is a group of veterans, IDF veterans, who also speak out against uh, Israeli policy based on based on our experiences as uh, IDF soldiers. Um, and today, um, I work uh, for an organization called Extend, leading um, educate uh, you know uh, justice oriented uh, learning programs for primarily for diaspora for diaspora Jewish audiences. Uh, which uh, involve introducing them to Israeli and Palestinian uh, human rights activists um, and stakeholders on the ground, people who live in in, uh, uh, vulnerable communities um, in East Jerusalem and in the fringes of the West Bank. Um, And uh, yeah, um, uh, uh, that's, you know, basically what's led me to this point. Obviously, now it's not very safe to really go uh, into the West Bank, especially for people who are kind of just starting to learn about this stuff. Uh, there's a lot of hesitation, um, and uh, there was a lot of interest in the immediate, you know, in the weeks after the, the horrific massacre uh, carried out by Hamas on October 7th, and the bombing campaign, and the all the talk of a ground invasion. So, um, a lot of international media uh, reached out to breaking the silence. Uh, and some even reached out to extend, wanting to hear from the voices of uh, IDF veterans who served in the last ground invasion uh, that Israel carried out in the West Bank. So that's basically how, um, you know, basically, you know, the w- one big thing that I did was I wrote an essay uh, that was published in the New York Times, um, and then um, and then a lot of that led to a lot of like yeah television requests, radio interviews. Uh, print journalists, you know, interviews um, in the U.S. and in Europe and in you know all sorts of countries. Um, and uh, basically, I talked with the the director of Extend, um, and we decided this was like a worth worthwhile thing to pursue, uh, just because you know we need the international community to take a stand against these uh, policies. Uh, the people in power right now um, are basically unrepentant. They're not really taking accountability, especially Netanyahu, who's not taking accountability for the fact that his policies of refusing to pursue a political solution and to solve the conflict, but rather just to manage the conflict and to and to strengthen Hamas at the expense of Palestinians who are willing to negotiate with us and, and to recognize us and um, and to recognize international law. Um, uh, and, and so we need we need uh, our partners. We need the diaspora community, uh, Jewish diaspora community, to to take a stand uh, against these policies. Uh, so yeah, so so writing and uh, being interviewed uh, really uh, kind of is aligned with with our general uh, goal uh, as an organization. Um, and yeah, I've been doing some talks, like I did done some Zoom talks. Uh, I've done some in-person talks with different rabbinic students uh, here on the ground in Jerusalem. Um, and uh, we might see a return to doing some more trips in, 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 the, in the future months. We're, we're thinking about doing some Zoom 
Zoom events to to do some kind of like content creation to kind of help deconstruct some of the uh, Hasbara uh, Israeli uh, you know foreign ministry talking points. Uh, um, and uh yeah that's that's basically uh i think maybe i went a little bit beyond uh answering just your 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 question about one moment but i gave you the whole trajectory in a nutshell uh yeah. up till today no it's good um it's i feel like because i've been wanting to hear you speak about this so it's i'm just enjoying you know listening to you and hearing your thoughts i'd love to get on the mailing list by the way for extend oh yeah or whatever absolutely. and you know get involved or whatever but um i'm really curious because everything that you say to me seems very it's logical it's like it's almost obvious you know but i have a lot of friends who are in the army and they don't necessarily view things the way you or i do um and i'm curious like first of all like what do you think what do you think is motivating people and how, what, what makes them kind of be like, no, Israel has to do this. They're doing the right thing. What, first of all, what makes them feel that way? Like what kind of separates you? And also like, I'm curious if you had a lot of like pushback from colleagues, from friends, from, you know, people you were in the army with, like how, what are people's reaction to you speaking up? Um, what is uh, um yeah uh you know i i've definitely had pushback i think more from like relatives um like the people mm. i served with in the in in the army like uh i i'm sure many of them disagree with me disagree with me uh i have a lot of a lot of you know uh friends who you know we're in broad agreement about like the 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 the, the dangerousness of the of the policies like you know even friends um you know friends that i've been in that that disagreed with me up until um uh up until october 7th um and maybe still disagreement with me uh to a certain extent but um they believed that the conflict could be managed they believed the idea uh and the and the lies uh that that netanyahu and smutrich said and and now they don't now they now they've been disillusioned of that, um, and yeah, I've gotten some pushback, but uh, a lot, you know, lots of people who I have no idea who they are, like just writing to me that I'm like a combo, mm. and like you know, um, a couple of like high school friends have written to me, a couple of relatives have written to me. I've had some productive conversations with some people who have written out, who have reached out uh, critically. Um, but yeah, not like none of my close friends in the, in the, in the army have really, you know, sent it like, you know, like reached out, uh, uh, you know, specifically like, you know, critically with any kind of like, you know, any kind of like, uh, uh, biting criticism or anything like that. Um, mm -hmm. um, yeah. So in terms of like the, the other part of your question about like, well, why don't like you're right i think it's this seems very self-evident that like the longer we perpetuate this you know system of uh, military control without any type of political vision or hope for palestinians uh the more it perpetuates the cycle of violence and empowers extremist groups 
Um, I think that there's the 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 kind of common sense um, is it, it you know it's it people it's more obvious to people who kind of come from in like an outside perspective because when you're on the ground here um, living in Israel you are uh, are subject to an enormous amount of um, kind of political messaging uh and talking points that are designed to create fear and hopelessness um and to dehumanize Palestinians um and it's a hugely um i would say like a defining feature of political discourse around the conflict in Israel um and i think that you know i'm having a lot of um i would say like moments of i would say maybe mini crisis uh of faith in in the past few uh weeks about you know what i have done for all these years as an activist because we have failed to convince the israeli public like like i feel like we're the ones who should know better we're the ones who learned about this stuff read about this stuff spoke with palestinians uh, came, you know, were able to, you know, go beyond. And we haven't done a good job convincing the Israeli public. And, um, uh, yeah, I think that, I think that there's a big, there's a big, um, there's a big, uh, I think, um, lack of people who translate kind of like academic research and, um, kind of uh kind of lucid uh analysis on kind of the history of the conflict um translating that into like an accessible format whether it's in social media or you know people who are able and willing to talk about that in on television and on radio uh you know and in the educational system um and so, um, yeah, it's a big problem. It's a big problem in Israel. Um, I think that, uh, I think in some ways the Israel, the, you know, the, the Jewish, uh, diaspora and the international community, um, people who think that they're being pro-Israel is also kind of, um, been co-opted into helping perpetuate that. Because, um, you know, uh, this idea that Israel is constantly under attack and Israel needs to be defended and you need to stand with Israel without really, um, you know, uh, being very reflective uh, has led to most Israelis who are extremely intelligent and extremely thoughtful and extremely critical and self-critical about so many things when it comes to like, well, how is the government treating the Palestinians? The answer is always just like, we need to show more force. We need to just be more aggressive uh, for so many Israelis. Obviously this is not without exception. Um, you know, you know, and alternatively you have the people who are considered to be the doves, like the more moderate people are like, okay, like we need to, we need to be like aggressive, but also give them like economic incentive, but like to treat them with the same kind of like approach 
that like or hold them hold hold uh uh to expect uh the sa- them to be satisfied uh with standards that are so much lower than what we ourselves expect for you know or demand for ourselves which is political rights and political independence and self-determination um to just completely disregard that as like a possibility or something that should be pursued um because it's you know it's inherently dangerous um that is something that you know israelis uh i think people on the israeli left have not done a good enough job uh advocating for in a way that's broadly accessible um you know of course we're up against a well-oiled machine i think that you know uh the the likud netanyahu um and other you know it's it's not even just them but they've done a very good job in cultivating alliances with dictators uh now dictators around the world and even in the middle east uh with evangelical christian lobby groups with very very far right wing uh diaspora jewish groups um and even kind of more moderate uh uh diaspora jewish groups have basically convinced them into like you know we don't air our dirty laundry don't be self critical uh don't be reflective kind of like we'll take care of this but like israel always needs to be defended and needs to be kind of excused for its behavior um because there's this enormous bias against us and there's anti-semitism and of course there is lots of anti-semitism out there and it is a very real problem um but i think that the uh the argument uh, of anti-semitism uh is being um kind of misused uh you know I mean, I remember just a few years ago when Ben and Jerry's ice cream, the the parent company owned by, oh, sorry, the, the company owned by Jews decided that they wanted to take a stance against, you know, uh, the uh, unjust uh, policies that Israel is carrying out in the West Bank uh, and say, we don't want to sell our ice cream in the West Bank. We don't want to, we don't want to be, um, we don't want to support. We don't want to do commercial activity uh, in the occupied territories. They didn't even. Uh, they weren't even boycotting Israel. They were just saying that they don't want to be supporting uh, the occupation and the settlement enterprise. And they were called anti-Semitic by Yair Lapid, who's a member of the opposition. And so, to me, like that's something. That's something that I support. I don't buy anything from the from the occupied territories. I don't I don't want to I don't want to send my dollars even even though even though um you know even though my I have relatives who live in some of these settlements and you know like there is you know you know there's there's a limit to how much you can really truly disconnect yourself as an Israeli um you know from economic activity like Israel's entire economy is is you know tied up with with the settlement project but um you know I see like you know, products and supermarkets that are produced in settlements, I feel like if I buy that, I would be uh, doing something immoral. So that makes, does that make me an anti-Semite? According to the logic of Yair Lapid and and many in the Israeli government, I am an anti-Semite. And and so that's, I think, a dangerous thing because it also cheapens the accusation of anti-Semitism in smart people 
and uh, and people in bad faith, um, they take advantage of that and be like, look how Israel is just crying wolf, m- manipulating the accusation of a- anti-Semitism. You shouldn't take the anti-Semitism claims seriously. And then they try to get away with uh, real anti-Semitism. Um, and sadly, what's what's even worse, what we see increasingly is that Israeli leaders are willing to accommodate and to provide cover for people who are actually perpetuating anti-Semitic uh, uh, conspiracy theories and rhetoric um, if they provide political support for the settlement project and diplomatic cover for the settlement project and, and you know, even right now uh, for Israel to prosecute this, um, this aggressive uh, military campaign with no, uh, with no um, real um, uh, clear end game. Yeah, that's what you mentioned. Yeah, you're Lepid. It just brought me back to when I was in Israel. I have some Haredi relatives in Ashdod, and I went to visit them. And at the time, yeah, it was Yair Lapid was very. His big message was he wanted Haredim to serve in the army. He wanted the the ultra religious mm. dudes, Jews, to serve in the army. And my cousins mm. were railing against him, and they said Yair Lapid is worse than Hitler. And I was like, excuse <laughs> me. And they were like, Hitler only wanted to destroy us physically. Yair Lapid wants to destroy us spiritually. I was like, all right, I, can't, I don't know, I don't know what to do here. Like, would you say this if my dad, who survived the Holocaust, he was here? Would you say that you know your mother survived the Holocaust? You really said whatever. But that's I could rail against that forever. That's you know. But um, getting back to the the thing we were actually talking about, um, there's this this narrative I keep hearing to cover up you know, what's, what's happening. This is, this, this, I'm going to say what, what I've seen based on just basic, basic news. What I saw is there was a a massive attack on October 7th. It was horrible. And then Israel basically destroyed half of Gaza, like just destroyed it. Like, yes, there was, you know, rape, there was murder, there was burning people alive, whatever it was, horrible, horrible things. But then the reaction was like 20 fold just destroying an entire, like almost like a civilization. And the defense that I keep hearing is human shields, human shields, human shields that Hamas is using this population. It's not that they just live there and Israel is going and bombing the hell out of them and just killing all of them. It's Hamas's fault for keeping them. They tell them, don't leave. Um, Is there any legitimacy? to that in your opinion like from what you've seen your experiences in the army yeah i mean listen i'm i'm absolutely sure that hamas uses um human shields um you know that's that's to me without a doubt um true um but you know um you know, I, it's it's hard for me to say. I, I I I know just as much as anyone else. Like I have no kind of privileged information mm-hmm. about how this current war is being uh, carried out. I've read 
also reports and analysis. Um, I've heard the rhetoric of my own elected officials who are saying in Hebrew, you know, like we need to, you know, we shouldn't let a drop of water in. We shouldn't let a drop of fuel in. We shouldn't let a drop a scrap of food in. We should be focusing on creating uh, on damage and not on accuracy. Uh, I think in the early days of the war, I think there wasn't, you know, uh, there were there were uh, strikes, the type of strikes uh, that were being carried out without without any of the precautions, or or with few few of the precautions that were uh, in previous wars. Um, and previous wars, I know firsthand, uh, you know what I saw and what I learned about what happened in in the area that I was stationed in. I know that, um, you know, again, once the area was like. Once Israel warned all the civilians to leave the areas, we operated as if there weren't any, even if we found later on civilians that didn't leave. Not everyone left. Um, and I know that this family, the Wahdan family, um, who I, I read about this, them later, I remember hearing about them at the time uh, that they had, they had uh, basically... Uh, Another team, I never actually met this family. I just heard about them. Another team was, you know, uh, clearing a row of houses kind of parallel to the houses that my unit, my team was clearing. Uh, they found this family. Um, luckily, they didn't hurt them when they were going into the house because, we again, we're going in with live fire. They gave them uh, food and water. They guarded them for, for days. Uh, and then a few nights later, we have this incident where a soldier from a unit is killed. Uh, many are injured. It's a horrific, you know, evacuation effort. Um, we pull out of the neighborhood, and then immediately after we pull out of the neighborhood, this is like right as the sun is coming up, like Air Force jets fly one after the other over the neighborhood and just pummel this neighborhood, and they kill uh, this family. And uh, so I, I, at the time, I saw one of my friends from the other unit who had been, you know, who had you know, come in contact, closer contact than me with this family. And he's like very upset. And I'm like, what's the matter? He goes, well, there's this family in this house. And uh, I go, uh, there, there's death. There's no way that they're bombing them. Like he, he thought for sure, as this neighborhood is going up in smoke, um, that they're killing, that they killed this, this family with, with the, it was basically women, children, and elderly, because what the, what they did was, they uh, arrested all of the men, all of the men who were like adult men who weren't elderly. They arrested them and they sent them into interrogation into Israel. Um, they were the only ones of the family who were saved. Um, I learned this later um, when I was, you know, uh, when I started asking myself, well, what ha whatever happened to that family? And I found like reporters who had gone into Gaza. And had spoken with that family, got the whole story. It lined up exactly with what I knew to be true. Um, um, and 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 so, you know, to me, like when I hear Israel does everything that it can can to avoid uh, civilian casualties, I I find that hard to believe that even in the war that I participated in, that Israel did everything in its power. Like to me, the excuse that okay, well, Hamas used human shields. Uh, and, you know, if we warn them to leave, then we can just act as if 
you know, it's their fault if they didn't leave, you know, that's, you know, that's really problematic. And, you know, this, this invested, this, this bombing of this family was never like investigated. You know, I don't know if it was intentional or not, you know, you know, maybe the Air Force never got the memo that there was a family, but like, to me, it's like, how do you, how do you not, how do you not make sure that before you bomb this neighborhood, which has been cleared by the way, which soldiers have been going through and, you know, destroying the weapons, looking for the tunnels, uh, to you know, to me again, I don't have all the details of the story, but to me, it just it it seems to be um, uh, uh, either gross negligence or uh, or an intentional kind of like, listen, you know, we have to bomb this neighborhood, and even if there's a family there, uh, you know, we're 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 just going to do it. Um, uh, you know, uh, and then to to basically hear more uh, aggressive rhetoric. And more uh, statements and 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 reports that Israel is being even less careful than they were in 2014. So, you know, I don't. It, to me, it doesn't hold water. It's it's um, it's it's not it's not uh, it's not acceptable to me. I think on on a couple of levels. First of all, you're seriously going to blame Hamas. Like Hamas is a is a is a fanatic fundamentalist terrorist organization they they have no they don't value their own lives they don't value civilians lives um you know uh and to them if they can accomplish their goal uh if it's if you have to sacrifice tens of thousands of civilians they're completely willing to you know there was a time where you know there was all this the, this fear of the incubators in the hospitals running out of fuel. And I heard the Israeli spokesman getting up there and going, you know, well, it's Hamas's fault. Like, seriously? Like, the, you, they don't care about killing children. They're perfectly capable of killing children. So you're going to be like, well, it's not our responsibility, you know, to, to allow fuel to arrive because Hamas started this war. So you know, all these kids can just die for all we care because it's Hamas's fault. And, you know, we won't, we won't make the effort. We won't, uh, you know, uh, do, do what we can. And, and the second, the second reason it's unacceptable to me is that, you know, I think that we have to understand that the only way forward to avoid for this happening again, to prevent these, this violence from flaring up in ways that are unpredictable uh, and, and you know, you you can't control this violence. You never know how bad it's going to get. Um, the only way to avoid it and to mitigate it is to work towards a political solution. And in order to do that, you need the the Palestinian civilians of Gaza are going to be our future partners. They're going to be our future neighbors in a in a Palestinian state. And and bombing them and killing thousands of them. And uh, causing enormous amount of suffering is 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 really destroying the possibility or making it much much more difficult to uh, prevent in the long term this, this from happening again. Uh, so you know, I I think it's in our interest not to to cause this uh, uh, unnecessary uh, uh, suffering uh, on civilians. And you know, I think that part of the reason. Um, you know, like, you know, you look at, you look at the, the, the bombings, you know, uh, 
some of the bombings is ha- are, are happening in areas that there aren't any civilians. Um, you know, you look, you know, uh, uh, but you look at they're they're actually destroying buildings that are have some kind of symbolic value. Um, you know, courthouses, uh, schools. Um, you know, it's like it's almost like they're making Gaza unlivable. They're making uh, they're making any type of political solution impossible. They're saying it's all for operational needs, but you also listen to their rhetoric and they're saying they also don't want to reach a political solution ever. So to me, uh, you know, it feels like this is, you know, a lot of this is coming from a place of collective punishment of we need to show them. Uh, And you've had people, you've had, you know, uh, uh, you've had statements, you know, basically, you know, warning Hezbollah, right? Uh, don't you dare uh, enter this war because we're going to make, you know, Beirut look like Gaza. Um, And it's almost like the destruction, the mass destruction uh, is part of a deterrent strategy, um, which by, by, by inherently means that, you know, we're not thwarting like a specific attack or a specific capability in every single airstrike. Um, In some of the, some of the testimonies that I've seen, um, you know, about like uh, the bombing of these tall residential towers. Uh, I think this is not from this current uh, this current round of fighting, but uh, somebody who was involved in the in the designation of targets was saying they said, let's look for towers which we can uh, we can find like a, a half a floor or a couple of offices in the building that we can attribute to Hamas, and so that way we can you know, they take down the whole building. So like, it was like, they, they're, it's like, not like this is the most pressing Hamas target. Let's, you know, prioritize, you know, striking the, the, the targets that are most deadly. We want to take down a building. So let's find a building that we can justify bombing, you know, by connecting it somehow to Hamas. So like, these are things that are coming out now, um, which, you know, I'm sure it's just the, the tip of the iceberg. Um, but I think, like, you can't blame this all on Hamas. Uh, I think that we have to hold ourselves to a, a, a much higher standard than Hamas. Uh, and we can't be, um, you know, an accessory to causing an enormous amount of suffering and death and undermining possibility of a, of a future with Israelis and Palestinians side by side um, by just you know, chalking this one up to, to Hamas because they started it. Yeah. I mean, the thing that I think about is what happens now with specifically northern Gaza. So, like, northern Gaza is, it's been conquered by the IDF. Like, right, is that an accurate statement? Uh, it hasn't been entirely conquered, but uh, there are still pockets okay. of resistance uh, in Sinjaia and and other some other uh, pockets, but it's been, I think, maybe for the most part, it's definitely been isolated, and it's definitely uh, been mostly uh, conquered. Okay, yeah. So I was talking to I was talking to a friend of mine who's in the IDF, um, and I was basically asking him like, so is this is this Israel now? Like, like what happens? Like, are the is there any possibility? And again, this is just there's no way of you knowing this for sure i'm just curious you know your thoughts like is there any possibility that the people who were evacuated ever return 
and somehow rebuild? Like, is that even remotely possible? Um, I think that there's no there's no other choice. Um, but I think that um, yeah, I think that there are lots of people in the government who don't want them to come back and they want to build settlements and want to you know spread out Gazan refugees from all over the world, all over the world in different countries. Um, uh, Ari, uh, one second, can we take a quick a quick break? For a second, yeah, yeah sure. About All right. Well, we can uh, let's wrap this up. Uh, I just have really just one yeah. more question before we go. Sure. Um, I think kind of this whole conversation we've been kind of pushing back against the narrative being put out by the Israeli government, Hasbara, etc. But w- the, there is this big claim that I keep hearing that for whatever reason it's st- it doesn't sit right with me, and that's this claim that Israel is committing genocide. Um, and to me, that just doesn't, like I looked up the, the, the UN definition or whatever, um, and it said that it, you basically need the intent to destroy a population and just dispersing them doesn't, doesn't count. Um, but I'm curious if that, does that word bother you or is that something that you would agree with? Like just the word, the word genocide in reference to what Israel is doing. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I haven't I haven't been using the word genocide to describe it, and that's, I I'll be honest, I haven't looked up uh, the technical definitions, um, you know, uh, one way or the other. But to me, like, I think that when people use the word genocide, like they what they mean is, you know, th- that's what it's known as. It's known as you know, uh, like trying to wipe out an, a, a group of people. Um, and I think that, you know, even if Israel isn't doing enough to prevent, um, not doing enough to prevent uh, um, civilian casualties and to a certain extent is collectively punishing the Gazan population, which in and of itself is a very, very uh, grave uh, problem. But it's, it's certainly not trying to maximize uh, civilian casualties. Um, uh, very, very far from that. Um, so, um, you know, and, you know, and, and listen, that doesn't mean that there aren't people in the Israeli government who have said, who have made genocidal statements, you know, ministers in this government talking about nuclear bombs. Uh, also, by the way, leaders of Israeli parties um, who are not even in the government, who are in the opposition, who are supposed to be more, you know, more moderate. Um, who are also saying there's no such thing as innocent people in Gaza. That's a genocidal statement to me. Um, and that's, by the way, that's something that uh, um, Batalos Mustrich basically said, you know, every two million, two million Nazis, basically everyone is implicated. Everyone needs to be wiped out. Um, so you have genocidal rhetoric from ministers, from members of the security cabinet um, on the ground despite all of the criticism and all the, uh, um, you know, uh, horrific uh, slaughter of civilians that's happening right now, to me, genocide doesn't seem or, or like uh, really trying to wipe out or annihilate an entire group of people. It doesn't seem to me uh, like, uh, like, uh, uh, you know, um, what is is at play i think that i think that 
you know, and and again, this is this is something that they've been discussed oh discuss openly. They do want to just disperse the pot the population of Gaza. They would love to forcibly uh, disperse <clears throat> or 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 um, or voluntarily uh, encourage. You know, well, you don't have a home anymore, and there's not really any viability for you to ever come back to it because we need it for security. Why don't you just go to like Canada and France and you know, uh, every country do, you you know, do your fair share and take, you know, tens of thousands of, of gathering refugees. And then we can be, I think that that is, there are people in the Israeli government, lots of people in the Israeli government that want that to happen, but just a wholesale slaughter of as many Gazans as possible. Um, it doesn't, it, uh, I don't think we're there yet. Um, you know, thank God. You know, and I think that it's very important that the international community push back against that rhetoric. I think it's very important that, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, Israel, um, uh, uh, that Israelis uh, protest vociferously against that type of rhetoric. But, you know, I I saw people like, you know, using this rhetoric, you know, in the very, uh, you know, the very first weeks of, you know, the responses. IDF responses, um, and again, I think that there was very, very problematic, um, deeply, deeply disturbing, and and illegal and immoral. And you know, I have no problem with with you know criticism uh, and and you know demanding for for that to stop. But I don't, I don't think to me genocide doesn't seem like an appropriate word, and almost. Um, to me, I thought was in some ways maybe maybe counterproductive. Like again, I don't think it was you know the worst thing in the world. Like honestly, I think there are bigger problems with the discourse than than just the, the use of this term. But to me, I thought like the people who are kind of like kind of on the fence, like this isn't going to convince them. Like this is going to convince a lot of people that um, you know that uh, you know this that like the claims are being exaggerated and um you know that's always you know i i i'm always trying to be careful to, to just be like accurate and not to, to the, the the reality is bad enough as it is i don't think you know you need to exaggerate or to use hyperbole really um because i think it undermines that's how i see you know uh you know my, my whenever i try to get a message out um um you know but again i don't think it's again i'm not saying like again i don't ha- i'm not an expert in the in, in the definitions and i i you know i've seen like people who seem to be like some serious scholars to talk about you know this this could be a genocide this might be a genocide this is a genocide but to me you know i don't i don't uh i didn't use that rhetoric and i didn't think it was um i don't think it was a good idea to use that rhetoric yeah, it's it's very frustrating for me when I see people like they'll say something that's really true, but then they'll add in the word genocide, and I'm like, I can't show this to anybody because they're immediately gonna, their brain's going <laughs> to shut off. They're going to be like, this is anti yeah. because it's like there's exactly. a lot of problems with exactly. everything, you know. Yeah, it's it's um, a very very serious accusation, and to me, it's like, so wait, like if this is just a mass slaughter of civilians, like with with like little to be done to avoid it or or not nearly enough and like like 
if 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 the 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 near starvation or mass dehydration that is like imminently you know uh uh happening like if that doesn't qualify as genocide like to me the case is strong enough for intervention the case is strong enough like if if you are using a word but you're not really sure and it's a very very grave accusation um you know uh yeah it's gonna like i to me i don't think you i think it's just from a strategic point of view like it's you know it it doesn't help the cause uh of, of trying to convince people to take a stance um but you know uh, uh that's that's where we are right now um and, and uh you know i think like having having connections to people on the ground to activists uh you know on both sides i think it's really important at this moment because i think it is kind of grounding i think a lot there's a lot of discussion that is kind of very theoretical and very disconnected and very you know sometimes you get carried away when you're a little bit less in the know and in in connection and in dialogue with with uh with uh with people on the ground with you know i think especially with israelis you know i think uh you know i think it's important to be in dialogue with uh both palestinians and israelis and i know you know i'm not i don't deny that you know i'm sure of a huge proportion of palestinians uh, have no uh you know have no issue using the word genocide and, and, and talking about the word genocide um but you know um you know, I think uh, still, I still think that you know, it's it's something that to the outside observer um, should be something that you know you give consideration to, um, you know, to both perspectives and to kind of uh, not just you know use the rhetoric of one side. Um, so. Um, you know, and again, I know I'm not. I'm sure that they're. You know, not every Palestinian is 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 using that rhetoric, or not every. Uh, you know, and and I'm sure there are Israelis who are. You know, using the rhetoric of genocide for sure. Um, so, I think people really need to not not uh, give. You know, to use their own critical thinking and think. You know, before they um, before they go out and do like very aggressive and very accusatory campaigns. But uh, I understand, like the ur- the urgency and the and the and the despair. I mean, like the images are just they're they're just too too much to bear. I think, like you know, I I, I you know, there's a certain there's only a certain amount that you can really bear to see. But this is the reality for millions of Gazans right now, and 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 millions of Palestinians who have relatives who. You know, who, you know, it's their it's their fellow Palestinians who are being bombarded, who are having their children, you know, thousands and thousands of children are being buried under rubble, who are, are you know, don't have food to eat, don't have water to drink. People with cancer patients can't get treatment. Like this is this is an, a horrific situation, um, and uh, I think that that's the key. The most important thing is not, you know, what what the rhetoric, one way or the other, that's being used. The most important thing is to stop it. And I think that the main question should be is, how do we go about convincing people who are in a position to to do something to change this reality? That that to me is that that's the only question. 
That's the only question that's important right now. Um, um, so yeah, so um, thanks for thanks for host for having me on to 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 talk about that because again, like you said, Ari, uh, we come from very similar backgrounds, and I hope uh, you know some of your listeners also are from uh, uh, the Jewish community, which is I know as we both know very very involved in in advocacy on behalf of Israel. Um, you know, maybe uh, we'll 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 I've given them something to think about um, so they can also um, take part in a thoughtful and informed way uh, in efforts to minimize the suffering of Israelis and Palestinians uh, and work towards a better future, uh, which Israelis and Palestinians can live side by side. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for coming on. This has been a fun, lighthearted conversation. You know, this is a, definitely the most. Uh, you know, it's it's good. It's what's the, what's that thing? Oh, you know the 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 phrase. It's a uh, what is it? Smile, everything is good, or something. Teng fiu chakolotovan. So my mm-hmm. my yeshiva that we had the like a, a parody of that slogan on our sweatshirts. It was a uh, ten mabat chamor sever hakomor kav. Like make a serious face. Everything is complicated. Yeah. So that's like, that's, you know, this conversation, it brought me back, it brought me back to that. Um, But yeah, thank you so much for coming on. Is there anything that my listeners can uh, do right now, let's say, is there like a campaign? I know you had a campaign going on, you're collecting money. Uh, How can they, if they feel, you know, they want to get involved, what can they do? Yeah, no, I mean, first of all, uh, you can, you know, uh, go onto our website, uh, sign up for our mailing list. We're sending out updates about opportunities. Uh, to support partner organizations. Right now, we're running our own uh, crowdfunding campaign, which is you know sorely, sorely needed for us to be able to continue our um, our work. Um, you know, a lot has been disrupted for us, like groups that were supposed to be coming and supposed to be kind of you know uh, you know we were supposed to be like providing our learning programs for, which helps sustain our work. Um, at, you know, are not coming anymore. Um, and we're trying to adapt. We want to create resources to help give kind of nuanced, uh, uh, a, a kind of deconstructing of kind of a lot of the very shallow talking points um, on really, you know, coming from in, in diff- from different directions about some of these issues, uh, the background of the conflict, what can be done to solve the conflict. Uh, um, and uh, so, yeah, so we're trying to do that virtually. We're trying to get into the media, writing articles, doing interviews. Um, and like you said, some of the work that we've been doing in the recent months has have gotten, you know, millions and millions of views, gotten lots and lots of feedback. And we want to continue to do it. And we want to also kind of create our own content, um, uh, not just be dependent on CNN and MSNBC and um, the Sky News and you know, uh, BBC, but to kind of find our own way to package that message. And we think that can be really impactful and really uh, uh, very, very positive contribution to the uh, the discourse. Um, uh, but yeah, we need to find a way to, to support our, our work. So I'll be really grateful to anyone who who uh, can, can uh, contribute and share our crowdfunding campaign. Um, 
uh, but yeah, uh, there's lots of uh, there's lots of other great organizations, um, Israeli and Palestinian, who are doing good, important advocacy work and on the ground work, supporting um, victims of uh, October seventh, um, and uh, supporting uh, Gazans and Palestinians in the West Bank who are suffering immensely um, because of this war. Um, yeah, thanks so much, uh, Ari. Uh, may we know better times. Absolutely. I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to link to, to that stuff in the, the podcast description. So if you're listening, check it out. Uh, Bancy, thank you so okay. much. And uh, yeah, bye-bye everybody. Bye-bye. Take